when I was uh, starting out as a software developer, I looked up to management. They were the smart people. They know what to do. They know how to handle customers. They always mm-hmm. had an answer for, for everything. And then at a certain point, you grow up a little bit and you notice that that's totally not the case. Management is panicking in a, in a meeting room late at night and coming up with a plan that's totally unfeasible but good for now. I'm Vinch, and this is Pulse, a podcast by Made With Love, where we hang out with interesting product leaders that found their way to Europe, or have discussions about a variety of topics related to engineering or product management just between us. In today's podcast, we'll be talking to Mike Verman, a software strategist from Belgium. Mike has a tremendous experience in building products and managing engineering teams and he will enlighten us on how things should be done to get the best results when building software. We'll also talk about a blog article he wrote earlier this year and that was heavily debated inside Made With Love. Joining me today are my colleagues Jonas Drigge and Dimitri van Lunter, respectively software engineer and engineering manager at Made With Love. Hi, Mike, and thanks for being with us today. How are you doing? Fine, fine. Thanks for having me on the podcast. You're very welcome. So if you don't mind, can I ask you to introduce yourself a little bit and explain what you do for a living? Yeah, I'm Mike uh, Verman. I'm a consultant in software projects. That means I've been in the tech space for the last 15 years, being basically a software developer, project manager, had a little stint as an agile coach. And so now I'm somewhere in between. So my mm-hmm. main group of people I work with are companies that are trying to put a project on the rails or more likely putting it back on the rails. That, uh, that's a lot of cases I get uh, involved in projects that are not going that well. Uh, so now I'm somewhere cool. in between, between a technical leader and a software developer who still works hands-on in projects. And you want to stay in between or it's like a permanent situation to be to be like that? No, no, I've been in uh, both extremes. So I've been the coder who just does what installed and I've been the project manager who has no idea what's going on. So I love to stay in between. There's there's a, a good place to be in between. All right. So I think you and Jonas, you know each other. So if I'm not mistaken, so can you explain that? Maybe Jonas, you can explain that? Yeah, I think this was like five or six years ago, I guess, that we worked together shortly on a project. It was like a couple of months, maybe half a year or a little bit longer. Fortunately, that the, the plug got pulled out of that project and the entire team sort of went their different ways. I think most of the other team members went to went to Team Leader, one of, uh, one of Belgium's uh, more successful startups or scale-ups, I should say nowadays. And that's how I ended up at Made With Love. And I think then Mike also went his own way. He was more the project manager role in that team. Yeah, that is correct. So that's that's why you follow uh, Mike and that you discover this article and then you then then you shared it. But I think we'll talk about it later. So first, Mike, I want you to ask you, you. You already touched the topic a little bit, but you you say uh, on your website uh, you you define yourself as a software strategist. So yeah, what does that mean exactly? And yeah, you already talked about it. But what do you do on a daily basis? So what's your typical day, for example? Yeah, so I think uh, software strategy is a bit of a, a branding thing, right? If I would prefer to call myself a software developer, that's basically what I do. I develop software. But if you use that term, people 
have the, this idea of somebody who translates Jira tickets into Java code, and, and that's not what software development is. And so if I would say technical leader or agile, blah, 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 then people think post-it notes. And, and so there has to be somewhere in between. So it's, it's better to stick on, to your own name, whether that's the best name, that's a <laughs> good question. But I basically help teams keep an eye of the big picture, but also getting along while they're doing that. So that means on a daily basis, I have two kinds of customers. I have the customers where I am embedded in a team and for a few critical months, I uh, take a tech lead or team lead role and also uh, try to scope down what we're trying to build. But I also more and more coach existing teams to just deliver their product. It's more of an outsider role, not as embedded. But that usually is still a technology-driven thing. So I try to avoid the purely project management, and I don't join teams where it's just purely, here are the tickets that need to be built. All right, very clear. So again, on your website, so I, I spent I spend a lot of time on your website. I see that you, you talk about uh, the concept of digital transformation. And that term, yeah, it's it. I think it's used and reused, and uh, it, it became a buzzword, like our buzz phrase, maybe. I think we understand it's probably also a marketing thing, but we understand it. But I think like many people don't really understand what it means. So for you, what what's the definition of that? Yeah, I think a digital transformation is indeed, it's usually used as a management buzzword to sell more consultants, but there is something that needs to be done in a, uh, a digital transformation. For example, when I started out in the, in, in the industry, software and technology was an add-on, something that would make it easier to work. Instead of having a file, you would store it on a server somewhere, you could find it again. But that's no longer the case. We've seen the rise of the software companies, and every company is a software company these days. And that's what digital transformation means. It's it's a the way you look at your uh, industry should be a tech-driven vision. And so I see a lot of companies that don't have that, and they are stuck in the way we are selling things in 1990. Unfortunately, that's no longer the case. If you don't have a tech vision as a CEO of a company, you need that digital transformation. And that usually means replacing the management layer. And so I think a lot of companies are very active in that space. Some of them are too late. Some of them use a bit like the digital or the super highway, super information highway. If you're talking about a digital transformation in uh, in 2020, that's that's a bit late. But a lot of them are of those transformations have worked out. The best known case is Netflix. That's the best known case of a digital transformation going from mail and, and, and uh, just uh, DVDs to a streaming service. Those are the success stories. But we see that in our industry as well. Other companies have really really been successful in moving into the internet, moving to a digital e-commerce system. So it's not all consultant uh, lingo. There is is something to it. And it's, it's, Belgium is slower in that trend. Like usually in the technology space, we don't have that many e-commerce sites. I think now the Corona crisis is speeding that up a little bit. And so a lot of companies are forced to go through this digital transformation faster than they would have at all. Yeah, because as you said, they have no choice. Like the, I guess the most difficult thing is probably to make them realize that. So what you said before that all companies now are software companies. It's probably the most difficult thing once they realize that, okay, you have, you still have work to do. But uh, yeah, it's already you have like that mental shift that, okay, maybe you are not the company you were like 50 years ago. And, and I think maybe the, the example you take in Netflix, I don't know if I agree that it's a digital transformation. For me, it's like more like a, a startup pivoting because when they uh, when they change their model to uh, to the full uh, full streaming, uh, I think they were still small. Uh, yeah, I but, agree. Uh, and also, I, pro- I think uh, uh, yeah. retestings is not the best 
proposal or the best uh, idea of somebody who needed to transform. He's very internet savvy and, and whatever. But the, the idea of coming from something that is mail order and moving to internet yeah. first. Yeah, sure. We have these things like mail order catalogs still in Belgium, like these books that get sent to people at home and then they buy it through the post. And that's incredible that that still exists. And those companies are almost uh, bankrupt. There's there's not that much future in them. And so if they mm-hmm. don't see it, then it's going to be too late. Yeah, yeah. Do you have an example of uh, like more, or maybe Jonas and, and Dimitri, uh, uh, you can also intervene if you want, but uh, an example of a company that is much older than Netflix and that's still relevant today because they were able like to early make this transformation? That's a good question. I think I think a lot of government services are in that space as well. And, and there the examples are a lot easier to come up with. Um, I'm thinking that, the, I don't know what the English term for it is, but in, in Belgium, in Dutch, it's called uh-huh. the VDAB. Which is uh, the Flemish yes. service for for work and and people who who yeah, don't have a job and stuff like that. The the way that they have pivoted from working with consultants and everything on paper and stamps and whatnot and follow ups through phone calls, and they have pivoted to a fully digital uh, platform to do all these follow ups. I think I think that's a that's a very good example of digital transformation. And knowing that industry, that government industry, a bit from having worked uh, in, in in those situations. It's been a slow and painful process for them. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure that uh, digital transformation is not like uh, it's it's mm-hmm. a real thing because it's not only startup pivoting or old companies dying because they are replaced by startups. So you know you can be you can be an old company that exists since the 20th, 20th century actually be still relevant because early on or you you had a good strategy to to transform yourself. I also think uh, some uh, telecom and uh, banks in Belgium are shining examples of how they should do it even though those are not popular uh, examples but i i think the reason we don't see that many companies where we say oh that's clear digital transformation is because the outliers stand out the ones that don't follow it's it's the trend Mm -hmm. and so the companies that currently uh, still work with the paper and somebody who picks up the paper and drives it to brussels and those companies stand out because they're so old but everybody has moved on if i look at for example the hospitality sector uh, hotels yeah, we look at booking.com, but every hotel has a booking platform, a system where they can make rooms available. Mm. And right? So that wasn't the case a few years ago. Then people really had to call. I remember booking a hotel for a, for a conference, not even eight years ago. And they asked me to tell them my visa card so that they could book the thing through the telephone. Now, that's incredible. Oh, yeah. That doesn't happen anymore. So in a quick, short period of time, people have moved on to the digital platform. It's not visible because we consider it normal these days, but it's the outliers. Uh, that- yeah, a lot, sure. of retail, a lot of retail industry has uh, either been, been disrupted or, or had to pivot. Uh, I think me- mm-hmm. media companies uh, going from from a newspaper to to a digital and online first publication, that's also been a process of of ten or fifteen yeah. years uh, that they've gone through. The amount so. of uh, uh, restaurants that have their own table booking infrastructure, uh, the amount of small shops that have an mm-hmm. e-commerce site on their own thing, it, it's it's normal now. So that's why we don't get real examples, spectacular examples, because it's no longer spectacular. It's it's the norm. It's those few, that one bank that still has a guy printing a CD and then driving it. Yeah, that that bank stands out and we say, ooh, it's, uh, they're not going to make it. But that's not the norm anymore. So you would say that all the companies that uh, are still there today and that were there in the 20th century, it's because they, they successfully uh, switched to the new uh, 
digital age. I'm an, I'm an optimist in that. I think uh, there's there's a lot of mm. incentive for um, consultants to say that everything's bad and that they need my help, right? But it's not that bad. Companies are really doing their best. It could be better. And if we compare it to other countries, Belgium lags behind, blah, blah, blah. That's That's normal, but... It's not that bad. I think there's a lot of companies doing really great things and struggling while doing great things. That's the definition of doing great things, I think. Uh, the government sector is one of those uh, examples. We can look at everyone has this federal entity that is not doing well at the moment, but there are government agencies that are doing very well in that space. A lot of them are like really attractive employers at the moment because of the digital way they, they work. And so I think it's not as bad as consultants want you to believe. That's that's part of their job to make you believe that it's not going that well, and that, that you need their help. Yeah, Dimitri, you, you agree with that? I, I know that you have your own uh, uh, definition of digital yeah, transformation. Not, not just uh, digital transformation, but it's something that that I keep on remembering from a session that I once followed. And the guy said from transformation, if you need to implement it in the company or consultants come in and they say, we need a digital transformation or an agile transformation. That usually scares people away because people don't like change and especially not sudden change. Um, so he said, if you talk about transformation, be it digital, be it agile, talk about growth because growth seems a little bit more natural to people uh, in the same way that you just don't pull a plant upwards, but you nurture it so it can grow. Yeah, and that's mm -hmm. the kind of thing that most companies sometimes miss out on. And I agree with Mike actually that Sometimes a transformation is needed, like, for example, removing your old school management layer because they don't want to move to the next level. That's a bit of a harder change, but sometimes that is needed. But even there, then you can start growing towards the, the point you want uh, with your company. But I also think what you're saying is correct, but I don't really agree with the idea that people don't want change. That's that's. That's such a cliche. That's that's something people say who try to embed change, but people don't listen to them, right? Oh, they don't want change. No, people crave change. They want to change. They want things to improve. They want things to do better. But what does not work is that, and I, I'm guilty of that myself as well, back in my agile coach day, is showing up at a company and telling them how they should do their work. There's an extreme arrogance in that. Being a consultant that tells people how they should run the business they've been running for the last 20 years, how they should do it based on an interview you just had, and here's my, uh, my invoice. People don't buy that. And so a digital transformation where you have a few scrum masters show up and they tell you now how you should deliver software, that is bound to breed resistance. Because you have people who don't know the business, who don't know the people, telling them how they should do it. And it's there's little skin in the game for those people, right? You do a tour of duty at the bank for a year and then you send a big invoice and then you're happy. But everybody who works there is invested in that company. They're not helped. So I think what you're saying is true. Helping people grow, taking away fear and problems they have, that's what a consultant should do. That's where you can be that digital transformation, a system in that digital transformation. But the idea that an outsider can come in and become this, what's the word they use? Change agent. That's pure arrogance. Uh, and, and companies don't buy that. Yeah. And, again, and again, I've been guilty of that as well. In my younger days, I really believed I know what Scrum was and I'm going to explain the big bank how they should do it. It's, that, that's, that's not yeah, yeah, that doesn't work now. But the, uh, I'm, not also, I, I'm definitely not saying that everyone doesn't like change, but uh, I do think that some people, when you give them like very big words like transformation, they're like, mm -hmm. oh, what's going to happen to my job or to my place within this company and how will I do my work? 
And I see the same thing happening now, for example, um, where my wife works, the administration was a lot on paper that was happening and now everything has to go digital. And the person doing that had a really hard time like <laughs> changing to that way of working because she has been doing it for years and years and years on paper. And she was so used to her rhythm and her way of working. And she, yeah, she has to follow now. And, and I think that's sometimes the scary part when you don't have a choice anymore that you have to change and that there's no like in-between space to adapt to it. Yeah. yeah, I think the essence there is that people in general like change, but they do not like being changed. Giving them the opportunity to drive that change and, and to give them the insights to see where that change should be headed, I think that's that's very valuable as a consultant. But indeed, telling them what to do is, is pointless, I guess. I might be off topic a little bit on this one, but can, can transformation can also mean like uh, digital transformation, especially uh, being like more automation in the company and then maybe we need less people than... Uh, then we have to fire people because it, they are replaced by, uh, by I don't know, not a robot, but I mean, uh, softwares and everything. And so, yeah, in that case, I can understand that transformation is scary because you you, you hear that and you say, okay, we'll start automating these things. Uh, maybe we'll, we'll lay off uh, like a third of the people because we don't, don't need them anymore. So That's absolutely a case. And I, and I think we are at the verge of... We've seen this happening in the manual labor. Robots have taken over. We are the most productive workers mm -hmm. in, in Europe, meaning everything's done by robots. We're, we're going to see this in the, in the office space as well. And yeah, I think people are afraid of, of losing their, their job and change that way. I had this job years ago for a, a healthcare provider, and they had a guy who was responsible for the database and a guy who was responsible for the application server and a guy who was responsible for the hard drives. And that's all been replaced by AWS and Lambda. I mean, those are three jobs that are not there, and they're three highly paid mm -hmm. jobs, and they're not jobs that you can find in that specialty somewhere else because nobody's hiring Oracle DBAs full-time to just sit there and say, that SQL query is too slow, or you should have you should have sent that mail uh, earlier a week. Now we have to push it to Q2. That's that. Those jobs are going fast, and yeah, I agree. A lot of the optimization in, in also in the IT space. That's not a popular topic, but I think a lot of IT specialists are in danger of losing their job. That's going to happen, and so yeah, people stop that kind of change as well. Yeah. So don't you think it will go in a contradiction with the fact so on one side we have these companies that want to uh, to lower the cost and so if they can replace people by machines or yeah. software they will probably do because it's capitalism and if, if they can uh, reduce the cost they will they will do that and at the same time we have this political side of things that uh, want that they want jobs 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 uh, they want everyone to have a job they want to uh, have the best uh, uh, unemployment rate uh, out there and uh, so I feel personally, but it's my personal opinion that uh, this can be slowed by this. So the capitalism being being uh, being in, in contradiction with like uh, socialism, like I don't know, it's it's, it's very political. But uh, I don't know if you if you agree or if if it's your feeling as well. Yeah, I have some some opinions about that. I think we shouldn't aim for jobs, jobs, jobs. Years ago, I was in Hungary, mm -hmm. and there was a guy whose job was to stand next to a. Um, a parking meter and he changed the money if he didn't have the exact coins that's jobs mm -hmm. jobs jobs and that is yeah this guy has better things to do with his life yeah the only reason he does that is because he doesn't have cash 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 so we should figure out a way and I, yeah. i'm thinking like uh, universal basic income or those kind of things to make sure that people only do meaningful work and that's 
well, idealistic maybe, but that, that is what we're moving towards. I think the idea of you being uh, working on and maintaining a software product that nobody uses, for example, and I'm looking now back at the tech space, keeping up a ser- an application server that could be run in the cloud, but hey, we, our union says this guy has to do it on-prem. Those are not respectable jobs. It's not what people want to do. If they got the choice, they would do something else. Mm-hmm. And I think we should make sure that people are not economically forced to do meaningless jobs. Yeah, I think there's a good book on that mm-hmm. topic. If uh, if you want to delve deeper, there's uh, David Graeber, yeah, I, I think, who wrote uh, Bullshit Jobs mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. Uh-huh. That's, uh, that's very much in line with what you're saying here. That's one of my favorite uh-huh. books. And I wanted uh, Mike to say uh, universal basic income, <laughs> and I, I succeeded. So yeah, I'm happy. Yeah, I knew where it was going, yeah. but uh, I wanted but to, I think, to have yeah. your point of view on this. I think everybody who is in the tech space and looks at what's happening with employment knows that that's where we need to go. It's either that or the pitchforks. There is no no way that we can... We need more people to do technical work because we have less people who are able to do yeah. the more complicated technical work. So we, we, we will not be able to, to sustain this. And and we see this again with, with a lot of these big scalable things like uh, Deliveroo, for example. Uh, I have this Chinese restaurant around my corner that still does their own delivery. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's not scalable. That's not going to continue to work. They're very traditional that way, but... We, we feel that there's a big automation, a big improvement, and that will happen on offices as well. Yeah, I think I think you're right there. When I look at, for example, a very practical example there, uh, the job of a manual QA uh, who's, do, who's doing testing uh, after the software was developed. I think that uh, the last couple of years, that job has been like either gone away or shifted towards becoming more of an in-team consultant to drive quality and I think that that's been a really tricky space to be in mm-hmm. as if you were a manual quality assurance uh, engineer to to shift your viewpoint and to to become part of that agile transformation to support the teams. I also see the same happening with the job I used to do project manager. Project manager is no more, longer a full-time job. It used to be the case, but it's no longer a full-time job. So one manager does five teams uh, and yeah, that means there's only there's four unemployed. Yeah, but I think managers. that's in line it's with not, the, with the uh, this, uh, this slow disappearance of or the slow disappearance yeah. of the need for middle management uh, because that's what a project manager mostly is they're, they're they're middle managers dealing with numbers of like of their specific scope of work yeah absolutely but that's part of the automation because why don't we need them anymore because of things like jira and uh trello boards and those kind of things that those are the, uh, the things i used to remember my first project management job i had to go to each developer and ask ticket 25 how far along are you 80 percent that's not happening anymore mm-hmm. so we've automated a lot of yeah, yeah. ridiculous yeah. jobs and so I, I think it's automation as well and a lot of management people don't want to think about the fact that they can get automated away that's that's one of the the things we are going to see in the coming years and we're seeing it already yeah and at the same time it's not just automation but i believe it's also just the drive mm-hmm. to uh, autonomy in teams and to self-management that that entire flow is just like bringing that self-management into the team and then removing Absolutely. the need for a dedicated product manager Absolutely. or a project manager sorry cool uh so we yeah we we slightly uh uh shifted from the we digress yeah we digress. a little bit 
but uh, it was interesting, so uh, uh, I'll let you talk. Maybe I can I can also uh, advise another book on the topic if you're interested in all these things uh, related to universal uh, basic income and stuff. So it's called Utopia for Realists, and it's it's written yeah. by uh, Rutger Bregman. Mm-hmm. I, I know probably that. know it, Mike. Yeah, it's a it's a very good one. And by the way, I'll also add a, a book recommendation. I'm a I'm a big fan of uh, what uh, Andrew Yang has written, the, the the War on Normal People. Oh, yeah. uh, it's a political manifesto, but it's mm-hmm. uh, very American. But it has this r- real implication of what it would look like to roll out a universal basic income in the United States, and that's the big uh, the big question. It's, a, it's very well. It's not that well written, but it's very uh, interesting how you can, can. Yeah, it's actually on my list. I I had it on my list uh, a few days ago. So yeah, definitely gonna read this one. Okay, so. Uh... I spend a lot of time on your website, as I said, and the tagline that I see there is that tech needs better leaders. Uh, why, why do you say that? Uh, do you think that there are too many bad leaders out there? And uh, if so, why? And for you, what makes a good leader in general? When I was uh, starting out as a software developer, I looked up to management. They were the smart people. They know what to do. They know how to handle customers. They always mm-hmm. had an answer for, for everything. And then at a certain point, you grow up a little bit and you notice that that's totally not the case. Management is panicking in a, in a meeting room late at night and coming up with a plan that's totally unfeasible, but good for now. And we talk a lot about leadership and we, we use like the manager is the boss and the boss is the leader. Like that's, those are the same things and that's not the case. And everybody who worked in a team knows that that's not the case. There is not one leader in a team. There is a leader depending on the context. There is somebody who, if it's about testing, you're going to listen to her. And if it's about talking to the customer, there is one guy who's really good at it. And so leadership is something you cannot take up. Leadership is other people deciding to follow you. And that's a cliche, but that is that's part of how it works. And what we see, what I see, industry is that we have these middle managers as Jonas pointed out and that's correct who have been appointed the leader and their their job is to make sure that all the cogs in the machines do what's what needs to be done but they have no idea mm-hmm. how the machine works and what the machine is supposed to do and if you look at the companies that are doing very well right now we get these uh, th- uh, again netflix uh, uh, reed hastings is a very internet savvy guy you look at the the way microsoft did this big comeback under satya nadella that's an engineer who looked at how what should be done and whatever uh, we can let the more controversial examples like uh, zuckerberg or musk or, or those are all technical people who have a vision and they can sort it out and the reason that they can do that is because they understand what they are building i think that's missing in a lot of the companies that go through that technical or the digital transformation they suffer i had a customer this year a project i worked on who had high ambitions in an e-commerce space but the management that tried to do it the old school way and they really talked about sending representatives mm-hmm. like guys in cars to their customer with a tablet and that was their idea of e-commerce you cannot win that war if you don't have that that vision. So what I'm seeing is, on the one hand, managers doing, yeah, building castles out of smoke, things that are not feasible, and they go full in of all in on that. And on the other hand, I see developers and techies just doing what they are told and rolling their eyes. And I think there's a lot of, and I don't think that I know there's a lot of space for technologists to stand up and to say, listen, let me take the lead in this. But what we see is we have this kind of 
introverts in, in, in IT, or that's a stereotype that unfortunately works for a big part of the, the industry, who don't stand up and they, they decide to, to stay out of management. And so I've been in multiple meetings where the manager said, this is what we're going to do. They left the room and then everybody says, oh, no, it's impossible. Why would he do that? And through my blog and my social media, I try to help out techies who would be good at leading and i see there's a lot of them who have good ideas because if you're in a team you you and you study a problem for a while you know a good solution that's feasible that's realistic it's just a matter of yeah of standing up and so that doesn't mean everybody needs to become a manager i think you need less managers uh, but that does mean that yeah. more developers i think should take up um, leadership okay so yeah, that's important. I think the, the the differentiation between leader and manager, because I think manager is more like a job title, where a leader is really uh, more like a, a mindset, yeah, a way to behave. A team. Uh, if, if you look at the hierarchy, the team that uh, Jonas and yeah. me were in, it was one of the best teams I've ever worked with. Uh, and that's not because I'm on the podcast. <laughs> I was bored at a certain point. Yeah, You talk to the customer, you manage the higher ups, yeah. but that team has it under control. And so the last thing you need to do is saying, I'm the boss, I'll intervene here, tell me what you're doing, you work on this ticket, you work on... That doesn't work out. So there's multiple leaders in the team. I remember uh, mm -hmm. uh, Stan was the, the, the tech lead uh, back then. Whenever I tried to intervene, he made my life difficult, and that's leadership. Yeah? And, and in the end, we ended up with a, better, with a better product. And I think every team needs three, four, five leaders. It's not a competition, it's not a zero-sum game. I think more leadership is... is is better. It's true. That always reminds me of the of the '90s Bulls huh? team. You know, the 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 Chicago Bulls, where you had Jer Jerry Krause as the big manager, and but then you also had um, had uh, Phil Jackson as the coach. But then at the same time, if you look at that team, you had you had Michael Jordan, who was the de facto leader on that team. But if they needed a spark on the court, you for sure you would know that Dennis Rodman was going to kick somebody really hard, or was going to create some atmosphere. Uh, there was Scotty Pippen who could take over a leadership role when someone had a bad day. And that team had like multiple leaders and they were very successful. And if you look at this year's, I, I'm going on about basketball because it's a very good analogy, analogy of a team, in my opinion. Look at this year's Lakers team. You have LeBron, who's a leader on that team. You have Rajon Rondo, who steps up. That team had multiple leaders who know when to step up and how to do things. And nobody's going to come in and tell them, this is how you should do it because... These guys are getting paid big bucks yeah. just to, to do and I what they we, can do we best. Take a lot of our management leadership lingo from the military, where there is one captain and then there is uh, one guy above him, and there's which mm. is not the case. It doesn't work like that. It's not like there's a strict military hierarchy within an organization. It used to be like that, but that has changed. As a project manager, which I, by the way, still think is a very important job that somebody needs to do in a, in a company, you cannot know the technical details. So you shouldn't make those calls. And I see a lot of people say, yeah, I'm the boss, so I'm the end responsible. Uh, you work on that ticket because that's our priority. If you don't know what the priority is, somebody else in the team should know. And we put a lot of stress, and that's why we teach our leaders or, or our managers that they need to make the decision, right? Which is not the case. Somebody needs to make sure that the decision gets made. But if you're a manager, you shouldn't make any decision because basically you don't know anything. Your job is to manage, to make sure that everything is on time and the reports are well done and people are not fighting. So I think there's more leaders in a team. It's not a, a competition. That's, that's better. Uh, it's not a, uh, you don't want prima donna people uh, fighting for who's the boss, but that hardly ever happens. 
there's a guy in every team who's responsible for operations. And then we say, yeah, but we do DevOps and every developer is a... No, that's not the case. Somebody does the Kubernetes stack. And he's not the only one who does it, but he's the main guy. There are questions and decisions. And he takes up leadership there. And mm. that's perfectly valid. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. And I, I will... Jonas uh, uh, used a uh, basketball analogy. I will use a football one because I'm more into football. But I don't know if you if you saw this documentary on Netflix, but you, you have one documentary about... Uh, uh, Jose Mourinho, uh, the the coach uh, coach of Tottenham at the moment, and he said, "Yeah, I'm not here to tell them how to play. Uh, I'm not here to tell them how to shoot a penalty or, or to do this thing or this thing. They they know better. But I'm here to coach the team, not the players. You know, the, to to make sure they are they, yeah. they can work together well. And uh, and that's really for me. And, and I really like when he said that. For me, it's it's what a, a leader, I mean, a manager should be about making sure. Okay, they know better. They are the leaders in their field. They know better uh, how to shoot or to do or to do this or to do that. And I'm just here to make sure that uh, they work together as a team and it works well and, and we're able to move forward and to. In, in the case of a software team, uh, to to release, to ship off, and and uh, to ship so good whenever, quality and stuff. Whenever, that's what I mean when I say tech needs better leaders. When I talk to project managers, they all have that's uh, poster in their living room of uh, Steve Jobs saying uh, it doesn't make sense to hire smart people and tell them what to do. And then they go to the office and they do exactly that. Yeah? And so that, that's where we're where yeah. where we're missing uh, the, the 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 idea that that's you can do or you can lead a job that you don't understand. It's just crazy. It doesn't doesn't work that way. I agree. So, so for you, it's it's the reason why projects fail. Is, is it because you have like bad bad leadership, yeah. bad bad manager? That's or? a big part of it. I also think people are really bad at scoping. I think people are really bad at saying let's do a small step first and then into, uh, there's a there's a lot of managers who think we do moonshot after moonshot and one of them will stick. And that that's totally not the way you build software. You build software by Doing a small thing, and then if you can do that, stretch it a little bit, and if you can do that, then you get like a flywheel. Instead of this big, this is the flagship project where we're going to do everything at once. And that's partially because big consultancy firms have all the incentives to sell those flagship projects. Right? If you say, let's have one developer start with a proof of concept and gradually you build out on that, then there's not that much money to be made. You want 17 Scrum coaches and uh, we're going to do safe and we're going to uh, start with yeah, absolutely. A, small, absolutely. a small battalion of analysts, uh, yeah. 10 for the yeah. functional part, 5 for the business yeah. part, 3 technical Sounds analysts, like a favorite and architects. Project, <laughs> If somebody can tell me what a solution architect does, they, they get a beer. <laughs> it, it, it's it's really the that's the main drive why projects fails because they are they try to to hunt a, a mammoth and they haven't caught a mice in their life. That's that's the, the the way it works. So again, I think technical leadership is knowing what your team can do, understanding what they're doing, and then stretching it a little bit. You don't have to play it safe. You you can make a, a bet, but if you don't know that your team is struggling to maintain a WordPress. Uh, website and you don't have to build your own uh, e-commerce system. You, you have to gradually do it. And so again, there's, that's where most projects fail at the moment. Cool. So, so you use the, the, the word scoping. So I will, I will, uh, I will switch to that. So the, the reason why we invited you today is because uh, of this article you wrote uh, back in April, I think, and it was called Scope is a Lie. Uh, so I think uh, Jonas shared this one on on our Slack at Made with Love, and and it was interesting to see because I, I, I never uh, it's it's the first time I saw that uh, at Made with Love. It was uh, actually a big debate between uh, Jonas that that was uh, on your side, I would say, 
and uh, and Dimitri, for example, or and other people that were. I think the, kind the big of, debate. Yeah, the big no. debate is uh, is a bit of a stretch here. I think uh, I think there there was definitely a lot of agreement and middle ground on on certain things, and we'll get to that. I mean, there are things in the article that are open for interpretation, uh-huh. and and depending on how you interpret them, I believe they can. I mean, I would not fully agree with them either, but I think in general, the, the, the big idea behind the article is still valid. So as you're speaking, maybe you can explain a little bit, you can ask what, it's, what, what the article was about. I, I think it's, it's more philosophical than literal in that it's, it's about how software is built and created. And to look at it more like a piece of art than a hard, uh, a hard science. And and in that yeah. sense, when you're when you're working on art, and it, then it becomes really hard to scope things. Like where where's the ending of your canvas? And from that perspective, I really I really enjoyed reading the article. So I agree with that, Mike. Is, is it a good uh, summary of what you you wrote? It's an interpretation, yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't like to compare it with art because art has this: when is a painting done? When the uh, when the the painter decides it's done. And so that's not the case. We're not building doom. Eh? Where we say it's done when it's done. That's not that's not what we're doing. We're building something for a customer, and there are expectations to what done means. What I've noticed is that scoping. Scoping comes from project management, and most of the things we are doing these days are no longer projects, they're, they're products. They are things that have an, an infinite life cycle, and we confuse those two. Well, our salespeople confuse those two. And so there is this, the coastline paradox, maybe you've heard of that. If you measure the coast of, of Britain with a, a ruler that's one meter long, you get a different result than if you measure the coast uh, with a smaller ruler. Right? The coast gets bigger, the smaller your ruler gets. And the more you investigate scope, the more you work on something and start building that specification up to a level, level uh, where it's exact, the more scope you will discover, the more things you will see that, that you still need to do, and the more you learn about the project. And that's natural. But all our management tools are built around the fact that you can get something done, which is not the case. You will never get software done. It's done when the money is gone. Yeah, or when, when, when the last client leaves. Yeah, when the absolutely. last customer is no longer on your platform. Yeah, yeah. Or, or when the for a, for a project is not done when all the the items in the work breakdown structure are delivered. Then that's not when a project is done. It's done when the money is gone. The company says it's fine. We have it and and go. And so using scope, the old school project management tool of scope, using that to define agile software products, basically that's what we're talking about, is 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 a lie. It doesn't work like that. Give a developer. Some or, or a designer some time to work on something and they will come up with a better solution than what we know up front. And so you your scope will constantly change as long as people are thinking about the product and, and, and trying to fix it. Yeah, okay. And uh, so, Dimitri, I think you you had some issues with articles, so now it's time to to express yourself. No, I, I think it's like Jona said, it's like, we, we did achieve some middle ground in the discussion as well internally, I guess. Um, but the thing I was thinking about when you were talking about scope and then like how you would prepare work in a team and um, mostly I, in most cases that happens because management expects you to come with a list of stuff you are going to do for that specific type of scope. And that's indeed not, not the thing we should aim for because it's, I think it was mentioned somewhere in the article, it's all the magic stuff that happens in between that creates the final product. But where I did maybe have some feedback on is like, what I do think is important and what I see in the teams that I work with is when there are more, 
less experienced profiles on the team or people who aren't used to building giant products, especially not greenfield projects, like helping them break down the kind of scope they're building of the product or the feature they're building that helps them see like, okay, from a product perspective, how do you build something like this? And then having these kind of tickets available in a system like Jira, for example, and helping them through that process of thinking how you would build something like that will help them see, okay, this is how I should look at it if I need to build something like this in the future. And these tasks will also help them see what's the next thing I can work on and what makes sense for me to work on as a next step. And for them, specifically, I think for more junior profiles, I think that magic in between is something they will learn at a later stage mm-hmm. that won't be learned uh, in the beginning of their job. Yeah, I agree with that, by the way. Not only for junior teams, I think um, once, you, especially when you go to asynchronous teams, you need to have a list of tasks you can work on. There has to be this concept of a little uh, block you can work on. That's not my problem. It's not a ticket that's the problem. The problem mm-hmm. is that a list of tickets that contains all the scope and that's what we're basically uh, working around. That's not going to work. If you build software, you always build software by breaking it up in smaller parts. Even if you see something that needs to be reworked, it's one small thing, and that will be a post-it note or a ticket. or what. There is a concept, but the idea of having 15 tickets in your backlog, and that's the scope of the project. When those 15 tickets are done, the project is done. That doesn't work. That's where that measuring the cost comes in. There's always tickets that will... Uh, wash on because the, the, the fourth ticket will invalidate the twelfth yes. ticket, and then there, there in the in the same process, like two other things get discovered that we missed. And very important, the product will get better because of it. It's not like it's rework and it's waste. That's not the case. The product will get better because of it. But if you look at Jira, was originally like a bug tracking thing, and for bugs that totally makes sense. There are fifteen defects reported by the users. Mm-hmm. We work away those fifteen defects, and the, there are no bugs in the system, and we can ship. Right? That makes sense. But for software development, it's a discovery. It's not something that we, if you, let's make a practical example I had a few years ago. We had a few screens with a, a very clunky interface and we didn't really, there was a puzzle that didn't work out. We had this user icon, you had to select which user you were and then you had to fill it out. And it felt very not user friendly, very uh, clunky. And at a certain point, a designer came up with this really cool widget that selected the user you were last time, and, and everybody was very enthusiastic about it. The problem was we already had 16 screens that were done, done. And so then you had to throw away everything, and you just have to start over, or, or there's scope creep, or and I had to explain where the scope creep came from. And that's not scope, scope creep. That's a better pro- product waiting to be, to be born. And so if you look at it from a backlog and epics and... 300 story points and then we're done you, you you will never get there you will get the subpar thing the original idea you have which is always the worst idea and so teaching developers that they need to be within scope you have to do this within your scope and that, that that's not the way it works the scope is does not exist the tickets are, are useful i mean you can really assign and but work on something together and say these five tasks need to be done and, and even dispatch them to junior developers if you want to be the lead who, who dispatches the, the tasks. That's all valid, valid. But if you think that after 16 tickets, you're done with the software, that's a fallacy that we also tell our customers and they believe it. That's the painful thing. You can sit in a meeting room and I've done that a lot, also on the project with Jonas, where the customer is super enthusiastic about what you've built. And then the second part of the meeting turns into a disappointment saying, ah, but we're behind on schedule. Yeah, but we've built something you did in order that you like better than. The... And so mm. it, I think a lot of the problems stem from that. And so if 
I agree with you. So breaking up things in small parts and tasks and, and, and little user stories or whatever, that's important. That's how we build software. But the idea that there's a collection and that's all, I don't buy that. And like, I think that's pretty interesting, actually. Like, do you think there's a way that we can move past that? Because it also feels a bit like we inherited that a bit from traditional project management and we're trying to slap it on uh, yeah, our more agile way of working. Mm-hmm. But we still keep doing it for some yep. reason. Or when we try to sell budgets for, for if we're a service company, we try to estimate some kind of scope and try to put a budget on that. And it's like you say, even when all those tickets from that scope will be done, there's probably still some work that needs to be done. Yep. So how do we move past that? I, I have some ideas about that, of course. There's this um, software development and project management are two different fields. Right? It's not that there is this exact overlap. And so for the, the old school waterfall style um, approaches, there was a group of very smart people who came up with an approach of how to measure progress, how to contain those uh, changes and, 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 and how to build software in a waterfall system. We are taught now that waterfall is all bad, but waterfall was ridiculously successful. We've built a lot of things using waterfall. And so yeah, it worked perfectly unless you want to learn yeah, something yeah, along the way. It's optimized for control. And now agile software development yeah. is optimized for discovery. And I see a lot of people struggling with the combination of the two because what you cannot do is use story points and add them up into a, a backlog and then a, a break, a burn down chart and that's the project, which is what everybody is doing, but that's not how it works. And so how do we use project management on a product strategy? The answer is we don't. What you do is you make sure that your teams can continue building, working software, a valid product every two weeks, three weeks, whatever your iteration is, and then budget those iterations and say, we're going to hire this team for 10 iterations. These are the goals. Make it work. And that's that's a hard sell because our consultancy firms sell fixed price mm-hmm. discovery products. And you know that that's, that, that's impossible. And so... <laughs> I see this a lot, people who like waterfall is bad and ooh, it's horrible, but we want all the benefits of waterfall. That's what they what they want. And so I think it's 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 very interesting. I, we've never been here. We are looking at people who are doing interesting work, but the companies that are really, really good at it, they build teams and not products, uh, not uh, uh, projects. And so the idea of scoping Netflix in a project it's nonsense. You cannot build Facebook in a project. That's, that doesn't work. You build a great team and you build your product around it. But yeah. you still have some kind of idea of where you of want course, to go. Of I, I'm not saying you don't. I, I said yeah. earlier in this, uh, yeah. in this interview that, that I'm a firm believer that there is a role for project management. That absolutely is vital. And we're forgetting that in the Agile thing. It's like carte blanche. Uh, we, have you, and we estimate and every week we ask developers how expensive is it going to be. That doesn't make sense. Somebody needs to take a look on the planning and the, the, the budgets. So, But it's not as clear cut as it was with Waterfall because we've been... Waterfall is very much modeled on how factories work. There's a design session, there's an analysis, there's a technical analysis. And at every point you can go back and tweak it and also tweak the cost. And so by the time you have your technical design finished and you're going to build that, you can be pretty sure that's how much it's going to cost. And so that's expensive, but that is controllable. And so, yeah, maybe, maybe we're asking the wrong questions. How can we know exactly what an agile project is going to cost is the wrong question. You're, the, the fact that you can play with is the scope. Yeah, no, I think I fully agree mm-hmm. there. Yeah. And I think we should start looking 
at software teams more as an operational cost instead of a project cost. And once you once you're building a project, you have you have your team and you know exactly this is my fixed cost of my software yep. engineering team. You know what their what their wages are and what their rate is. So you know what your cost is. Now the the question then becomes what is my revenue? Like where am I getting the money from? And and what am I going to focus on to optimize that revenue stream? And how am I going to find new customers well by improving the product? What should I be focusing on? And then we're asking questions about quality and about new markets and about research and innovation and stuff like that. And not about how long will it take to build no, something like that. If I ask you how long will it take to build and here's my document with all the specifications, you can make a fake estimate. But if I ask you this is my problem. What's the cheapest way you can try and get a first feeling to solve it? You can give a better answer. I do think there's a problem with budgeting as well. Companies have a year budgets and they have to be able to say what they will deliver and their return on investment on a budget. And, and so it's not that clear cut. It's not that easy. But if you're being frank, that's not a software developer's problem. And so changing the way software developers work, because management otherwise has a big puzzle to make, that, that's not a good way of, of, of working either. So if you look at them as two completely different fields, project management and budgets, and on the other hand, software development, then you can do that lazy trick where you say, what's good for me, software developer, we work by investigating and controlling, and somebody needs to make sure that there's money for that. Right? That's the lazy way of looking at it. The reality is that in a commercial software development team, you have to do the little bit of both. And we're not doing very well at that little bit of both. I think we're really selling it bad to our customers. Awesome. So great. That's super interesting. So maybe uh, maybe we can conclude with that. Uh, I just have maybe one more question, which is broad, and Jonas and Dimi, you can answer as well, uh, or, you, or you see this. But uh, um, So it's, it's more like a philosophical one, but... Uh, well, if you had like a, I would say, a infinite money, infinite uh, yeah, uh, resources, uh, and you had to start a project in in twenty twenty, uh, what would you do? Uh, what what would you what would be your strategy to make it successful? I know it's super abstract, but uh, what's your opinion in on my that? My opinion: there's a lot of big companies, especially those that are not that far along with. Uh, their technical vision that do have infinite budget and infinite timing. And they, they build horrible projects. Mm -hmm. It's a small scrappy things where we say we don't have time for uh, big working sessions. Just give me working software and let your specialists come with a solution and we'll work from there. Those are the, the, the lean and innovative uh, companies. I think a lot of big companies are poisoned with high uh, budgets and, and, and a lot of people they don't need at that point. A small team can run circles around uh, an engineering department in a big bank. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree there. I think I think the, the restrictions that you have breed a lot of creativity. And if you have enough money, you don't see the waste that you're generating. Whereas if you're, if you're already mm -hmm. short on budget, you will try to get rid of every single piece of waste. And that just, by definition, makes you a lot more lean. So, so the answer would be uh, have limited resources, limited budget, so you can focus on, on what's very important. Yeah, fi figure out what the most important part is and collaborate on that uh, until it's good enough to no longer be the biggest problem to solve. I, I think there's a lot of truth in there, and that's a very and difficult exercise. Be, right? Because if I would go to one of my customers and say, 
it was the cheapest budget you can give me. That should be a no-brainer to sell. The problem is that people who don't have that digital vision, they don't trust that. They see cheap is not good, and they hear the uh, big consultancy firms say you have to invest at least half a million to get to a first working version of. Uh, there are every year there's this this scandal with a website that has cost twelve million to build. Stupid website, yeah, and and it's behind on schedule, and then there's a consultancy firm and, and lawyers and blah blah blah. That's not normal. We should be able to go to our customers and say, what is your budget? Uh, 12,000 euros. Let's see what we can do for the coming thing. And you can build something that generates revenue very fast or that gets results very fast and then build up on that because I think companies that are able to become that flywheel, they make a lot of money. I think the toughest question is like, what's your biggest problem that you want to solve? Yeah. And, and a lot of people that... Like have a hard time answering that question, but once you go out in the field and you're actually talking to to all of the different people, like I'm I'm pretty sure they all have some complaints and some issues, and you can you can sort of map it on top of each other and and figure out what the most important thing to focus on is. Yeah, and I think what Mike also mentioned is important that if you would then have like a decent software development team that could give you the cheapest solution to solve that problem, and then maybe stretch the solution a bit further. And then support that development team from like a management perspective or a business perspective. That would probably be a more successful setup than uh, most of the setups we see now. Yeah, absolutely. That's something I wrote in, in the article, We, if I remember well. We have this idea where the best line of code is the one you don't write. If you throw away a ticket, you're punished for that. You're not being productive and you're not being paid for it and you're not being... And so. That idea of more is better is, is, is where we, we need to educate our customers a little bit. And unfortunately, we're up against companies that are, uh, every company is invested in selling more, of course. Uh, so we need to educate our uh, customers so they can demand less. So the conclusion would be we of this uh, of this whole episode should be we should abolish capitalism, right? Because I think that's... Uh... <laughs> That would solve all our problems. Yeah, and actually, we do agree with Mike's article, so we yeah. didn't disagree. <laughs> yeah, that's. I'm I'm a bit annoyed by that, but so uh, I thought so you would try it. But you are uh, okay. Interpreting my uh, my article as some kind of communist manifesto. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's the worst thing we have, except for all the other ones. Uh, it's it's. It, it wouldn't be the world, the first world shattering uh, uh, software yeah. manifesto. Yeah, well. <laughs> I suggest we we that, that would that will be the the last word unless you have something smart you want to no. say last chance. No, I think I think there is one more thing that I would like to add on top of what uh, what was said earlier. Uh, when you have this team of of good engineers uh, and you you have this limited budget, but you're doing you're doing great things and the, and the team is working right and you're supporting them from a management point of view, then the question becomes like how do we make sure that we keep this team? And that's that's uh, that's the next. That's step. Would that's be, that would be the topic of our next episode. Yeah, but that's where <laughs> your that's where a lot of your management effort should go to, and I think Dimi will will strongly agree on that one. Yep. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Uh, it was uh, super interesting, actually. So that was probably one of our greatest episodes so far. And uh, thanks for your time, uh, especially you, Mike. Uh, thank you for being a guest on, on this episode. It's, uh, it's it's always hard to make sure that once I start talking. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, I want to continue talking, but uh, we want to keep this under an hour, so we will stop here. But uh, yeah, maybe we maybe we can do another episode later because yeah, there are plenty of, of things that I saw that I want to continue right. discuss about. I suggest right. you write uh, a, write another controversial article, and I will share it, and then okay. we'll just end up here yeah. again. Something have a nice conversation. Capital. Good idea. <laughs> 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 All right, thanks, guys, and uh, all right. 
See you next time. Bye-bye. All right. See you, everyone. Bye. Well, that's the end of this episode. We want to thank you so much for tuning in. Our show notes and links to your favorite podcasting platforms can be found on our website, madewithlove.com slash pearls. If you like to stay up to date on our new episodes or other cool stuff we do, you can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram via PearlsMWL. That is PearlsMWL. Thanks again and have a good one.